Hello and welcome to Stuff That Interests Me with me, Dominic Frisby. And today we are talking Brexit, the great issue of our times. And with me to talk about Brexit is one of the figureheads of the Brexit movement. He's a politician, he's an author, he is Dan Hannan. And I have to say, today I managed to be late for my own interview. And I want to begin by thanking Dan uh, for his patience with my tardiness. Thank you very much, You're Dan. You're very welcome, Dominic. Welcome to the programme. Thank you. Let's... How's Brexit going? We'll find out soon enough how the procedure is going. Uh, we'll see whether we have a, uh, an agreed deal with the EU. I still think it's overwhelmingly likely that that will happen, because I think the logic of both sides is to get a mutually beneficial outcome. You know, on the, the day we leave, we become the EU's biggest market. Equally, we, we don't want to leave in a way that causes them problems, right? We, we want the EU to be successful and prosperous because rich neighbours make the best customers. So I think there's a mutual interest here. Uh, but whatever the uh, short-term stickiness, ten years from now, we're going to look back and wonder what took us so long. It's going to be kind of, EU, were we ever in that thing? So, you know, there's often a transitional cost when something is worth doing. You move house from a little pokey flat into a nice bigger one, the move is still stressful. But when you've done it, you don't regret it. I like the narrative. I'm going to question one thing that you said there, which is that it's of mutual interest for there to be a good deal. Mm. Now, I would agree that it is mutually beneficial for the people of Europe for there to be a good deal and for the people of the UK. But it is, that does not necessarily mean it is mutually beneficial for the EU from their point of view. Because they will see Brexit as undermining their very existence. They won't want to set any precedents that can be copied by other countries and so on. What do you, mm. I mean, that's a harsh view I mean, of the EU. Is true of some of the people in Brussels. It's much less true of the people in the 27 national capitals who ultimately uh, get to decide this. But, yeah, there are some theologians in Brussels who think that we've blasphemed against the doctrine of ever closer union and we need to be excommunicated and are not terribly interested in the welfare of ordinary people. If, if they were, they wouldn't have launched the euro in the way that they did and they wouldn't have stuck to it in the way that they did. Uh, but I think that is a minority opinion. Uh, it, it's a much... Uh, a, a much easier thing to flip this around and look at it positively and say, uh, rather than seeing Britain as setting a precedent for everyone who wants to leave, why don't you see it as the model of everyone who doesn't want to join but who wants to have the closest possible relationship with you? Uh, and this includes, you know, the EFTA countries, the Balkan countries, Turkey, eventually Ukraine, Israel, Morocco. I mean, there are lots of countries that could join a European free trade area without wanting or without being qualified to join the political structures and the, the political union. If, if you flip it around and see it as building something new, surrounding the EU with a ring of friends, rather than undoing something that's already there, then it's much easier to, to, on both sides to see the positives. Do all 27 countries have to approve the deal, or just the majority? Actually, it's just the majority. That's the funny thing about Article 50. Uh, it's a qualified majority. So we only need vote. 14. So you need a majority, a, a, a majority of member states representing a majority of the population is how the, how the qualified majority works now. Ah, so, so Germany would count for, Germany's Germany would count for more than, than Holland. Yeah, yeah OK. Yeah. Um, 
you're an MEP. Yes. You're still not for much longer, obviously. Yeah. You're still a practicing MEP. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, hope I like got, the way you say living openly as an MEP. Yeah. Have you got? I hope you've got some work <laughs> lined up for, for, for next year. <laughs> but um, the the what's the atmosphere like? Has it changed since Brexit? That's a really interesting question. I mean. I think it's a bit more blatant now, but the reality is that if you were a British Eurosceptic, you were always pretty much detested in the European Parliament. Uh, some of my more Euro-enthusiastic British colleagues, I think, have been taken aback to see now openly the kind of anglophobic undercurrent that was there all along, from which their Europhilia had up until now shielded them. I don't think this is representative of the countries of Europe. I don't think uh, you know. I don't think they're out to to get us in you know Poland or Italy or whatever. But in the institutions of Brussels, there's always been it's always been possible to say things about Britain that you would never say about any other country and be applauded in the chamber. And in a way, this what is, kind of things? Well, you know, it's it's, it's the, the sort of rule of of procedure is that you never attack a whole country. It's fine to attack a politician from a national. Everyone gets that. It's yeah. fine to attack Theresa May or David Cameron or whatever. But. Um, it, Google, if you get the chance, some of, say, Guy Verhofstadt's speeches and see how often he'll say, oh, the British think they're such gentlemen, but they're not being honest about this, and, and look at the reaction when he does that. Inconceivable that you would say that about Sweden or Spain or Slovenia. Uh, it's a curious thing that we've chosen to submit to government by people who don't really like us very much. Uh, I, by which, again, I don't mean the peoples of Europe, I mean the, the, the Eurocrats. Uh, when we get a much warmer reaction on more distant continents, which we can now, of course, rejoin, we can you know, do something about proper global trade. We can use Brexit to revitalise the whole uh, global commercial system. And I think in South America and Asia and Africa, there's a general sense that Brexit is an opportunity rather than a problem. I tell you what, I get a better re reaction to me in America than I do in England. I'm sure. <laughs> but actually, on Brexit, I suppose inevitably the further well, you everything. go from Brussels, yeah. right, the more, the more enthusiastic people get about it. And, you know, with reason. I, I, I run... Uh, the Institute for Free Trade we launched in September, and we've had meetings in Africa, in South America, and the people at those meetings, local entrepreneurs, are very enthusiastic about what they can now do, which they can't. Excuse me, which they can't do vis-a-vis -vis the EU. Um, there are very, especially on agricultural products, there are various tariff and non-tariff barriers that apply to a lot of the world, and. A, 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 an ambassador of a, a G20 country sidled up to me at the launch of the institute and said, how do we get to the front of your queue? You know, you're, you're doing all these trade deals. How do we uh, get you to focus on us? Which I think is it, it's so different from what you hear when you just look at the European media. Are you... You're, you're not having any involvement in the Brexit negotiations? No, I'm a backbench MEP. OK. And when... Now, when David Cameron stood down... You did you try and stand in his seat for the Conservative? Did you try and get yourself elected to no. be one of the MP? Have you got any ambition to stand as a Tory MP? Or did yeah. I, I, I yeah. just heard a story that you tried to stand yes. and they, you were blocked by the party? Well, I, I, the issue of my trying to stand as it were never got that far because it, it was blocked. It was uh, well, it, it's not blocked is the wrong word. It was done under by-election rules because it was a, a snap election, so they, they drew up shortlists okay. rather than allowing the. Uh, associations. So you wanted to become wanted, a Conservative MP in order to help influence the... Never actually got to whether I wanted to do it. Okay. And, uh, I mean, the answer, the honest answer is, after 20 years, I mean, there was an argument for being involved in the actual Brexit process, but after 20 years of being in the European Parliament, you know, I think enough. it's time to do something else. OK, so tell me about this, this Institute of Free Trade. How mm. much influence is it going to have 
on the world? Well, is it a think tank or what is it? It's a foundation that works very closely with British ministers. I mean, there's no point in just shouting from the sidelines. We want to be delivering. I mean, two years from now, we're going to have to do one of two things. We're going to have to either roll over our existing trade arrangements and then slowly get around to liberalising, or do something more like what New Zealand has done, what Australia is now doing, which is to say, we are opening our markets, we're inviting the traffic and commerce of the world here, we don't see it as a threat, we want prices to fall, we recognise that the best way to stimulate our economy is to mean is to give people the opportunity to buy stuff more cheaply, which frees up more of their time to make and invent and sell other things. I mean, it's a basic free trade formula that has worked every time. If we do the latter, if we do a New Zealand or a Singapore or whatever you want to call it, the impact could be planetary. I mean, you know, New Zealand opening its markets has been brilliant for New Zealand. They've gone 25 years without a single negative quarter. But imagine a G7 country that isn't geographically removed from everywhere else doing the same thing. There, there are potential benefits to everybody. But we need to win the arguments. Uh, free trade is a counterintuitive concept. People always uh, fret about being dependent on strangers for stuff that they can't see. Uh, every country in every age, you can get applause for protectionist arguments. So we, we need to go out and win those arguments. But for 45 years, we haven't even been having this discussion, right, because we mm -hmm. contracted it all out to Brussels. Uh, now that we've got the control back, we need to make sure we use it to our benefit and to everybody else's. Do you think there's a danger that we're, all the wrong decisions are going to get made and we'll go down the Corbyn route? That is a danger, yeah. Uh, if we left the EU to become not a New Zealand but a Venezuela, that would obviously be uh, catastrophic. In fact, if we get a Corbyn government, a Chavista-type government here, frankly, the issue of being in or out of the EU becomes totally irrelevant. You know, you, you're then dealing with government by, frankly, by somebody who regrets the outcome of the Cold War, and that's something we've never got close to in this country before. Where did you stand on Scottish independence? I was strongly in favour of having a referendum. I, I'd been arguing that there should be one for a long time. I would much I mean, I, I would have voted no in that referendum, but I would have much rather had the referendum and lost than not allowed it. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to live in the kind of country where you couldn't have a democratic decision for part of it to break away. Um, Why would you have voted no? Well, I think that there is such a thing as British nationhood, that the union between Scotland and England isn't just a kind of amplified alliance. Uh, it rests on most of the criteria that in other countries denote shared nationality. We speak the same language, we sh sing the same songs, we watch the same TV programmes, we uh, eat the same food and abuse alcohol in the same way and shop at the same chains and follow the same sports. Um, the basic argument that, that James VI and I used in his first speech to the uh, English House of Commons when he became king of both places, hath not God first united these kingdoms both in language and religion and similitude of manners? And, you know, together we've achieved some pretty good things, beating Napoleon and beating Hitler and winning the Cold War and spreading free trade, and I think that has created a sense of fellow feeling. But the day that people cease to feel that sense of mm -hmm. fellow feeling, the day that they feel that uh, they exclusively identify with an older patriotism, is the day that the Union should end. Uh, I'm not disputing that there's fellow f feeling, but there's also separate nationality, separate identity, and, you know, if you follow your Singapore, New Zealand, free trade, small state um, argument, you could argue that the same mm. should, could apply to Scotland. Well, it would be I believe very strongly in self-determination, right? 
but people, self-determination is not synonymous with secession. People can self-determine to remain part of another unit. And the strongest argument for the union now is that it's popular. It's what people have chosen. Uh, yes. If I mean, but personally, I would. Uh, it, it seems to me that with a with a narrow result as we had in Scotland, I think this applies in, in the case of Brexit as well. But uh, it was a forty five fifty five vote in Scotland. I think the only fair way to interpret that is as a vote for more autonomy within a single state. Mm. And I think that's now going to happen. And that's can right. we not have self determination within the EU? Well, if that had been possible as an existing member. That would have satisfied a lot of people. You know, people are always telling me, "Oh, you'd have been against membership in all circumstances." It's really not true. If David Cameron had come back with any significant retrieval of power in February 2016, that would have been, you know, that would have settled the issue. It would have, if he could have established the idea that we were in the common market, but we were repatriating powers in other areas. I think he'd have won comfortably. Uh, but the EU, for whatever reason, made it plain that that was not on the agenda. That they were, they would rather lose their second biggest financial contributor than set the precedent that any power could be returned. And so if you want that looser arrangement, logically, you now have to seek it from the outside because they've made it clear that it's not available on the inside. How doomed is the EU? I don't know. I mean, no-one can really see these things uh, with absolute clarity. My, my guess is that there will still be a core of countries pursuing political and monetary and tax harmonisation, military harmonisation and all the rest of it, I'm not sure that every EU member is going to be content to follow. I think what we may end up with is a kind of a pan-European market with lots and lots of countries just in the, in the trade area, you know, from, from Iceland to Armenia. Um, and then within that, a, a smaller group of 20, 25, however many states that are committed to a political union as well. And I, I think that would make everybody better off. Should the likes of Italy and Greece leave? Well, it's, it's a matter for them. There were some UK-specific arguments for Brexit that don't really apply nearly so strongly for other countries. The structure of our economy is very different. Uh, it's cyclically a, a, an Atlantic rather than a European economy. We're the only country, typically, that sells more outside the EU than to it. Uh, and, you know, if you were Belgium or uh, Slovenia the argument that you should contract out your standards for the sake of a market that is taking the overwhelming bulk of your trade is a much stronger one than if you're Britain. I think I first heard of you in, in about 2008 uh, when I saw you do a speech uh, about debt in the European Parliament to Gordon Brown. Did you realise how viral that speech was going to go when you uttered it? I mean, you, were, you basically articulated something that many people mm. thought but didn't have a platform on which to no, say. I had, I had no idea what was coming. I mean, it's, I, I think that's the kind of speech I give all the time. Um, you just know, this is the amazing thing about the disintermediation of news, that it's no longer up to a handful of commentators or politicians to decide what the priorities are. It, it, it's, we've crowdsourced it. And as the, I suppose, content generator, as a politician rather than a reporter, you have no idea what is going to catch the mood. Uh, and, you know, which is great. It's a, it's, a, it's a really strong market system. Would you like to be Prime Minister? No. I love my Never. country far too much. Really? Yeah. Um, Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank it's been you. a real pleasure. As we close, I want you to plug two things. Firstly, how we can follow you, your Twitter handle and so on. And secondly, your new book. So I'm on Twitter at Daniel J. Hannan. 
Uh, and my latest book is called What Next? How to Get the Best from Brexit. And it really would get the best from Brexit. I hope it sets out a, uh, a reasonable and structured way in which both sides could benefit. How many languages do you speak? Uh, I speak French and Spanish. OK, fluently. Yeah, I was brought up in South America, so that one was kind of a cheap. So three languages fluently. Brilliant stuff. Daniel Hannan, thank you very thank much. Thank you. That is the last stuff that interests me that we're going to do this year before Christmas. We'll start again in the new year, probably on a fortnightly basis. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Please uh, rate us. Please review us. Please do all the things that you're supposed to do. And in the meantime, happy Christmas, happy new year, and we'll see you in 2018. <laughs>